year. And as soon as you're ready in the next studio, uh, it is 10 seconds. It'll be 5.30. Time for Labor Radio. But that'll be three seconds, two seconds. Hello in the next studio. It's 5.30. It's time for Labor Radio. She's not looking. WORT needs you to volunteer as a receptionist. We are now welcoming show guests back into the building, and receptionists are the nerve center of our station. You'll be directing calls to staff, helping DJs with ticket giveaways, assisting on-air and in-person guests with getting to where they need to be, and so much more. We need receptionists to cover a variety of shifts during the day and nighttime hours. No matter if you're a morning, afternoon, or evening person, we have a shift for you. No experience is necessary, but familiarity with computers and the ability to work as part of a team are encouraged. For more information, call WORT at 608-256-2001 and ask for the volunteer and outreach coordinator, Adrian. You can also apply at wortfm.org slash volunteer. to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people in the labor movement to the Madison area and the surrounding communities. I'm Sandy Park, a retiree from both ASME and American Federation of Teachers. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Keith Steffen, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers. Ellen LaLazerne, co-producer of Madison Labor Radio, passed away last Friday, April 14th. Ellen had many aspects to her life, and those organizations will be telling her story as we will here at Madison Labor Radio. For more than 30 years, Ellen was a mainstay of the Madison Labor Movement and Madison Labor Radio. She passionately fought for workers at the workplace. Ellen believed that workers must have their own voice in the media. Labor Radio is dedicating this broadcast to those aspects of her life. But first, we bring you two stories about current labor struggles that were important to Ellen. OPEIU Local 39 members met Wednesday to vote on a strike authorization. Frank Emspeck has the story. This past Wednesday, an overwhelming majority of CUNA workers, members of OPIU Local 39, voted on whether or not 
to authorize an unfair labor practice strike. The results of the vote and future plans will be the subject of a press conference on Monday, April 24th at 6 p.m. at the Madison Labor Temple. Labor Radio spoke with Sarah Larson, a union steward and member of the union's negotiating committee, and a worker at CUNA Mutual Financial Group. We asked her why did union members decide to take a strike vote? We've been negotiating this contract for over a year, um, and negotiations have broken down in the last several months. The union filed several ULPs in order to, to bring the company back to the bargaining table. So far, that has not been successful. And so in order to get the, the company back, we decided to uh, take this next step to authorize the strike. So would it be fair to say that what you expect to accomplish is to bring the company back to the bargaining table? That is what we most want. Assuming for a moment that the membership authorizes strike, what are the next steps? We have within 30 days to to initiate the strike. If we can't uh, persuade the company to come back to the bargaining table and make a good faith effort toward settling on some of the priorities that we are that we're uh, seeking in in a new contract. What are the contract priorities? The priorities are wages on par with inflation, quality health care for all members, protection of our retirement, remote work flexibility, and most importantly, job security, uh, prevent and preventing the outsourcing and contracting of our work. Is mediation in the picture? It is. We are working with the Federal Mediation Conciliation Service to, 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 to bring the company back to the, to the table. Give us some sense as to how the members are feeling, or this is an unprecedented move on the part of the membership of the OPIU. They've never taken a strike vote. Our membership is historically unified behind our priorities and behind uh, any next steps that the bargaining committee thinks are necessary. Um, They're incredibly frustrated by the sort of steady, the steady communications coming out of the company that misrepresent how negotiations are going in a in a time where Cuna Mutual Group has never been more financially successful. They are appalled that the Cuna Mutual Group is not willing to show up and honor a contract that represents the value that we bring to the company. That was Sarah Larson, OPIU Local 39 Bargaining Committee member, speaking about Wednesday's strike authorization meeting. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. We have a short update on the strike at Rutgers University. 9,000 Rutgers faculty and staff have temporarily suspended a strike initiated last Monday after the union bargaining team announced they had made progress on solidifying a framework for an eventual agreement with gains on crucial points demanded by members. Last Friday night, the American Association of University Professors signaled that they made significant progress on race schedules over the lifetime of the proposed four-year contract and gained ground on increased job security for non-tenure track faculty members. These points had been some of the most contentious at the bargaining table leading up to the strike, but were only two amongst a list of unsettled points. In a corollary to their strike suspension announcement, AAUP-AFT members called for continued pressure on Rutgers administration 
through the end of this week to move the needle on outstanding bargaining demands. If progress is not made on those demands in the coming days, including guaranteed funding for grad students, housing justice, and pay equity across campuses, the union said that the strike can and will continue. This report is dedicated to the memory of Ellen La Luzerne. We miss you dearly. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang. Breaking rocks and serving my time. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang. Cause the done convicted me a crime. Hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working and working But I still got so terribly far to go Ellen was a co-founder of Labor Radio, this show. Beyond that, her four-decade commitment to the labor movement and labor media affected the lives of many in the Madison area and wherever workers struggle for a better life. We will now rebroadcast the last segment she produced and narrated on the labor movement and reproductive rights. This aired this year on March 10th. The webinar, Why Abortion Rights Are Workers' Rights, covered a broad range of topics that tied workers' rights to women's rights in light of the need for bodily autonomy and access to health care. The main event organizer, Victoria Gutierrez, an area nurse, active SEIU member, scuffle delegate, and executive board member of labor, has been long fighting for worker justice and abortion rights. She opened the event summarizing the nexus between workers' rights and abortion rights. The same right-wing politicians that promote a pro-life, anti-abortion agenda simultaneously have enacted anti-worker agendas. Tonight, I'm very honored to have this lineup of panelists to talk about the urgency in the moment right now, what we can do wherever you find yourself. New York University history professor Linda Gordon was first in the lineup. She provided a detailed account of how the labor movement developed alongside the fight for reproductive rights. Gordon also pointed out how the right managed to drive a wedge among working people about the issue. In order to move voters to the right, they had to win over working class, middle class, non-elite people who would not be attracted to traditional conservative politics, which were always about tax cuts for the rich. And the anti-abortion movement created hostility to abortion. Very, very large amounts of money went into funding these anti-abortion movements and anti-abortion publications. This is important because reproduction control is not only a matter of bodily rights, it is a social necessity necessity if we're going to ever move toward greater equality. And of course, at the moment, we seem to be moving in the other direction. New York University history professor Linda Gordon was first in the lineup. She provided a detailed account of how the labor movement developed alongside the fight for reproductive rights. Gordon also pointed out how the right managed to drive a wedge among working people about the issue. 
One thing that Linda was getting at is one of the strategies anti-health activists use to thwart people's rights or to control people's bodies is by getting us to think of medicine as evil or revolting. So to make abortion into an ugly word, you stigmatize abortion. So the first thing that we can do is to talk comfortably about abortion, both our own abortions and other people's abortions and all the strategies and reasons and methods come and discomforts. The next speaker, AFSCME Local 720 member Laura Butel, worked with her union to obtain contract language for providing access to abortion care by using language from AFSCME's state organization. Approached one of our labor-friendly county supervisors, gave him the language, and he was more than willing to take a look at it, see what he could do. And I was in a meeting, and this this email popped up, and he said, it's going to the committee tonight. And I started crying in a in a work meeting because I felt like it wasn't just me. Other people felt the same way. What they did in Dane County is we made it a budget amendment to provide so that if they were employed by Dane County or if they were going to be a, a support person with the, for a dependent or a spouse, we would cover the travel. I'm really glad that the budget um, got passed and our county supervisors were even, they were willing to give more even. Sarah Nelson, president of the flight attendants, spoke about the need to use our emotions as a strength in this fight. She gave an emotional reaction about the importance of the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, as you fight for a Supreme Court that may give you a chance to have equal rights in the state to control what happens with our own bodies, that is not just for our families, that's not just for our communities, that's not just for our children, that's for taking on the corporate class who has for too long controlled us, for too long pitted workers against each other, to take more and more and more to build a billionaire class that doesn't even have to talk with real people because they fly on private jets. They're not even on our planes where we can get at them. A transcript of the webinar should be posted on the Scuffle webpage. To review the transcript, visit scfl.org. Again, that's scfl.org. I'm Ellen LaLazerne for Labor Radio. Ellen's involvement in media dates from her high school days. Her sister Susie LaLazerne tells us how Ellen first got involved in media. She did her first year of college at UW-Green Bay, and that's when she got involved in the radio there. And she was doing technical work, so she got a radio license. And then after her first year, she decided to move to Madison. And when she got here, she got involved with Back Porch Radio at the time. And in the late 70s, early 80s, she she decided to do a TV show on WYOU. So I and Dave Watts were her on-air talent, and she wrote the stories. She often talked about WYOU as sort of a seminal experience. Do you know what was motivating her at that time? Was interested in workers' rights and liked working with media. My sister Anne told me that when they were in high school, they went to Mexico. And she, she said Ellen was going down to the radio station there. I think she really wanted people to have a voice, and so that's her way of doing it. That was Susie Lalo Zern, Ellen's older sister, describing how Ellen was drawn to media. 
Norm Stockwell describes the beginnings of Labor Radio as a 15-minute pilot that evolved into the 30-minute show that it is today. We got together for an initial meeting at the South Central Federation of Labor with uh, Jim Cavanaugh, who was the president of the Fed, Dexter Arnold, who was the editor of Union Labor News, uh, Frank Emsbach from School for Workers, uh, and Ellen LaLuzerne, who brought a lot of experience doing labor media programming on WYOU, community television. And so we, uh, and also uh, Tom Sinclair from Earthwatch Radio, which was a project at the University of Wisconsin Sea Grant Institute. And so we all got together and had a meeting sort of talking about what would a labor news program look like, how would it be distributed, etc. And then from that, uh, after Frank got back from Washington, D.C., we started a pilot program on Wednesday mornings on the 8 o'clock buzz with Jan Miyazaki. It was initially a 15-minute segment once a month, I think, and then it grew to twice a month. Uh, that featured workers' independent news content for uh, community radio. And that program was then uh, piloted into a, uh, a program that was presented to the WRT Programming Committee and became uh, the labor radio show that we know today. Starting in the late 90s, the idea was to have a program that was on a Friday evening that was a good time for working people. It was the end of the week and before the weekend to take a look at the news that was going on uh, that was produced by and for working people. And Ellen was a, a key member of the team creating that program every single week. In about 2004, Ellen became the president of Diver Diversified Media Enterprises, the producer of Workers' Independent News. At its peak, almost 150 radio stations aired the Win News five days per week for almost 15 years, the longest-running labor-focused radio program ever produced. It grew out of a national conference held here in Madison, but it would not have been possible without the existence of Madison Labor Radio. Howard Kling, director of the Telecommunications Division for the Labor Education Service at the University of Minnesota, comments about Ellen's role in the leadership of the project. Could you just describe for our listeners to give some sense of what the kind of guidance she gave us? She was very passionate, I think, about media and labor media and, and the project. That's just number one. I mean, had an understanding of media and had a pretty good grasp of the technology, actually, how to, how to do things and so on, which was helpful. But uh, all that contributed to just her dedication, uh, I, I felt, to the Workers' Independent News Project. Can you give us some sense of her commitment to modern media? She was a, a union, a union person, and um, believed in the power of workers. And also related to media, I, I felt that work unions, workers, organized workers needed a stronger voice in our culture and in our country. That was Howard Kling of the Minnesota Labor Education Service describing his work with Ellen LaLuzerne on Workers' Independent News. Mississippi Goddamn our last tune we had some request for. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Gone 
Ellen Lalazern knew a wide range of people in the labor movement over a time period that started in the 1980s and extended to just weeks before she died. David Newby, President Emeritus of Wisconsin AFL-CIO, shares his perspective. When do you recall first meeting Ellen? We met, as I remember, when she was organizing UW Hospital. She had worked on the organizing project through the Madison Federation of Labor, and in her work helping to organize nurses at UW Hospital, that was a major campaign. She was an organizer for them until she went to work for the Wisconsin Education Association Council. Do you have any recollections of Ellen that you would like to share? Let me just mention one thing. The day that Ellen died, eight of us had gotten together for dinner. It was not in relation to her death. It was a pre-planned dinner. And each of us knew Ellen, as it turns out, and knew her from different perspectives and different experiences. All of us were devastated by her death. And the fact that all of us knew her says a lot, I think, about the wide and rich reach of her experiences, of her involvements, of her work, and her friendship. You have been a delegate to South Central Federation of Labor in recent years, and she became vice president of South Central Federation of Labor. Yes, that's right. And it was great to see her in an officer position because she brought, I think, a again, a wide range of experience, something which is very important for the effective functioning of that organization. One of the things that has always impressed me is in the last couple of years when she's been sick is that she still brought a lot of energy to the different organizations and projects that she's been working on. It was just amazing. I mean, battling cancer during that whole time, maintaining her full-time job, working with labor radio on a regular basis, plus all of her other activities, that really, again, says a lot about Ellen as a person, her strength, her determination, and her involvement with other people. That was David Newby talking to labor radio reporter Keith Steffen. Keith also interviewed Jim Cavanaugh, former president of the South Central Federation of Labor, who remembers Ellen LaLazern as an active scuffle delegate in the 1980s. Over the years, she was a delegate to the South Central Federation of Labor from two or three different unions because she switched jobs here and there. And yet every time she was not just covered by a union, but active in the union when she switched jobs and wound up being a delegate to the Fed. And she was quite proud of that. I remember her bringing it up at one meeting that uh, I think it was her third different union that she represented at the South Central Federation of Labor. The one thing that I really recall about Ellen is she was active with the public access TV, the local WYOU station, and had a program and often in that program featured labor issues. In fact, I was on that program with her more than once, but it was always progressive issues and often labor-related issues. I then recall in the mid-90s when Frank Emspach was exploring the possibility of creating what is today labor radio. And I told him that he definitely needed to get in touch with Ellen LaLuzerne 
he did. And the rest, as they say, is history. She was a key, key component of the weekly labor radio program from its very beginning. So you had a role in introducing her to Frank? Oh, I had a role and then I gave Frank her name and uh, probably her phone number. <laughs> and uh, he followed up on it immediately and got the response that I knew he would. She always felt it was important to get the word out on important worker issues. And she always carried a very strong, progressive, but very logical and non-strident voice for progressive causes. Do you have any other recollections of Ellen that you would like to share? I have one other recollection. It would have been around the year 2000. And we had our usual annual Labor Day event. And my wife and I had recently acquired a puppy. And my wife brought that puppy to Labor Day. And Ellen did interviews of people on Labor Day to carry over the following week's labor radio program. And she interviewed her daughter and asked her what she liked most about Labor Day. And her daughter said, Mother Jones. And of course, we had named our puppy Mother Jones. Labor radio reporter Janine Ramsey spoke to Victoria Gutierrez, a nurse represented by SEIU Wisconsin. Her connection with Ellen LaLazerne was through labor radio and shared activism on a range of issues, including access to reproductive health care. Going forward, what are important priorities for you right now that Ellen shared? Since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, even backing up to the Texas abortion ban was an issue that was very important to Ellen as an individual, but also understanding the importance in the labor movement. What can we all do to carry on her fight and spirit? Listen to the person next to you. Ellen was a great listener. Her nurturing and her mentoring and her journalism, that's a huge quality that she has, is that she really was able to listen. Ellen LaLazerne spent the bulk of her long career working for the Wisconsin Education Association Council, or WEAC. Labor Radio spoke to several people who knew Ellen for, for, from her years at WEAC. I am Margo Schmidt. And I was one of the staff assistants at the Clause North office and then later at the WEAC office. How did you meet Ellen? When I started, Ellen was a director there. I started there in 95 and I retired in 2022. I've known her for more than 25 years. What do you remember about Ellen? She has a unending kindness and she's also just so very, very humble willing to help you with whatever you needed help with. Just a very giving, loving person. How did she treat people? My gosh, she was awesome. One of the things I admired about her was her constant devotion to the support staff, union members. I think she felt like those are the people that usually had the smaller voices, and I think she brought power to them. She did it in such a very kind way. Those were the people I think she thought needed the most help, and she was always there for them, just trying to make their jobs a little bit better. What was important to Ellen? Her family. She absolutely loved her kids to the nth degree. You could tell when she talked about them, there was this motherly pride. Her marriage was another very important part of her life. Those were the tops. After that, then I think it was unionism. She felt so, so strongly. If you could say anything to Ellen right now, what would you want to tell her? That I really miss her. I so appreciate having her in my life. She's going to be missed by a lot of people. 
That was Margot Schmitz talking to Labor Radio reporter Janine Ramsey. Christina Bry remembers Ellen as a mentor at WEAC and as a voice for educators in her many years reporting for Labor Radio. I'm Christina Bry, WEAC Public Affairs Manager. I manage our lobbying government relations program as well as our communications program with educators and the public all around Wisconsin. How do you know Ellen LaLuzerne? I first met Ellen when I came to work at the Wisconsin Education Association Council. And while I was from a union background, Ellen really took me under her wing and introduced me to the role that an education union plays for teachers and education support professionals all across Wisconsin. She had a really unique gift of being able to organize educators as well as educate around the issues herself, drawing the line between the issues that educators face every day in their classroom and how collective advocacy could make things better for students and the people who work in schools. She was well known deep into our union structure by the time I came on board. And that's what made Ellen such a great mentor. She was somebody who was humble, about her skill set. She was willing to take a step back and let a newer unionist grow, taking pride when she saw others around her being able to make change for themselves. But she also was super committed to the idea of union communications. And as a communicator myself, we talked long and hard and debated often about how to further our union narrative across Wisconsin, especially in the times after 2011. What are some of the stories that you remember Ellen covered? I could count on a call from Ellen anytime some bill would come forward in the legislature about expanding vouchers. That was a very personal thing for her, the idea that these unaccountable private schools could take tax dollars literally out of the funding mechanism for the local public schools that served most students. The minute a bill dropped, I knew I was going to be getting a text from Ellen. So it was never just about information. Ellen was always looking for a way to light a fire under listeners. She always say, you know, what can people do who hear this information? And she had plenty of ideas on her own about what that activism could look like. Was Christina Bry talking to labor radio reporter Janine Ramsey. And now a word from Ellen's colleague and friend, Frank Kempspack. As you heard, Ellen was involved in many aspects of the workers' movement. Media and organizing centered her life, driven by the commitment to ensure that working people had their say at work and on the media. Ellen and I worked together to bring the workers' voice to the airwaves on WRT for more than 25 years. We spoke at least once a week during all this time. Now her voice will be silent, but her work will not be forgotten. This is Frank Emsbeck from Madison Labor Radio. Next Friday, April 28th, a week from today, is Workers' Memorial Day. Workers' Memorial Day is dedicated to those who suffered and died on the job and to organize the fight for safe jobs. There will be an assembly and press conference at 11 a.m. Friday, April 28th, on the grounds of the Madison Labor Temple, 1602 South Park Street. Union and work attire is encouraged. All are welcome to attend this annual mobilization for more information 
For more information, go to the Scuffle website at scfl.org. A week from Monday, May 1st, International Workers' Day is a day without immigrants. This year, immigrant workers are demanding changes in state and local law, including the issuance of driver's license to undocumented residents. A march will start at 10 a.m. on May 1st in Milwaukee at at 1027 South 5th Street, rally later at the Milwaukee Department of Motor Vehicles, and end at Milwaukee's Zeidler Park. Then, the next day, on Tuesday, May 2nd, immigrant students and supporters in Madison will march from East High School at 2222 East Washington Avenue down Washington Avenue to the